الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين وقال تعالى بل هو آيات بينات في صدور الذين أوتوا العلم صدق الله العظيم Our dear respected elders, uh, dear respected uh, brothers and uh, everybody else that's online wherever else uh, you are Allah bless you all I'd like to start with the elders and say Gustahi Maf uh, I'm not an expert on this subject, but I'm absolutely, absolutely honored that I, I was actually shocked that this topic was even chosen. Like it was a pleasant surprise. And I later found out Sheikh Dubayan, I was just, I just didn't know what to make of it. I was like, SubhanAllah, what an absolute honor. This is one of, I, I would have loved to have heard why you, I, unfortunately I missed it if you mentioned why you chose this topic. But uh, I guess there's no surprise, really. I mentioned this in my speech, actually. Yeah, I, I heard half of your speech, unfortunately. Inshallah, I'll go back and listen to the rest of it. Because reasons are really important. Reasons why things happen are very important. What is the reason that this man was chosen? I think it's no real surprise, really. Um, for those, uh, the, the history of this man has impacted us all. Today, I think we are sitting here. Uh, and have benefited from the scholars that we have benefited from. And if I'm to ask you of our, uh, who we generally refer to as the Akabir, your elders, who, do you, who, do you, who comes to your mind first? I would guarantee that those that come to your mind first, especially if you're, if you're from the Indo-Pak subcontinent, then it will be a scholar who, is, who has benefited from the heritage of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi's story goes back centuries. It doesn't start off 400 years ago, or just over 400. Uh, his uh, uh, his so-called uh, fourth, uh, fourth uh, cent uh, centenary will be in about three years, in about two years or so. That was 400 years since he passed away. He lived over 400 years ago. But the story starts before that. With the conquest of Asia by our, our, uh, our Muslims, uh, from the mainlands of Islam from, uh, from Arabia. You had a number of families, especially the Quraysh and the Ansar, descendants of the Quraysh and Ansar that had moved into the subcontinent. And today I'm assuming that there will be people sitting here who have the names Faruqi and uh, Siddiqi and Uthmani and probably Alawi and, and Sayyid. Um, hopefully they are all authentic and reliable. Uh, because. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, with everything as there is, whenever there's something valuable, there's a lot of fakes that come around as well. I mean, I'm not charging anybody with anything, but alhamdulillah, you know. So there's a family that had eventually ended up in a place in Punjab, right? And uh, I guess the Punjabis will be really, really proud of this. Uh, unfortunately, it's the Indian side of Punjab. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, but this is the Indian side of Punjab we're speaking about. I visited it, these areas, Sarhind. So Sarhind, Punjab was unfortunately split into two, as other states of India were as well. So you have places like Ambala and Panipat, and uh, you have uh, uh, Ludhiana, you have 
this uh, Sarhind, this stays in the Indian side, Muslims had to migrate, that's a long story. But before all of this, so over 400 years ago, you have a family down there, a respectable family, a very respect, uh, extremely respectable family of Faruqis. They are Faruqi, so they, they descend from Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an. So what happens there is that there's a sheikh there and he has a son and he sees a dream and there's always a dream included in a lot of this sometimes that's you'll find that in that story in this story Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows but that's what's reported now while this is happening here there's a son that's born Ahmed right to a sheikh there at the same time in present day like current day Uzbekistan so the lands of Bukhara, Samarkand, Tirmidh, uh, Khawarizm that, that area uh, Shash, Nasaf all of that area, which is present-day Uzbekistan, right? Down there, there's a, a little area. Now, that's where a really huge sheikh had, had uh, worked very hard and had uh, established an order of spirituality. And it became known as the so-called uh, Naqshband way. And that's Khaja Naqshband. And he was uh, in, uh, uh, in Bukhara, Samarkand area. And from him, mashallah, he had many students that uh, spread around. So there was a little area. Uh, there was a little area uh, called in Inkina. Uh, some they refer to as Inkina. Uh, anybody who's from there, they, they call him Inkinagi. There was a sheikh there who was one of the descendants, one of the grand, uh, you can say, students of this Bahauddin Naqshband, rahimahullah. So that's the second connection. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a third person. Now, there's a person that leaves Kabul, which is in present-day Afghanistan. Kabul, Afghanistan is actually right next door to Uzbekistan today. If you go to Tirmidh, it's actually on the border of Afghanistan. Mazar Sharif and Balkh is just like two, three hours away from Tirmidh. That's where the famous Oxus River is. And you know what the Oxus River is? The Oxus River is what you will hear when you read history. It's the, the Nahar. It is the Nahar. It is the lake or the river. And anything beyond that was called Mawara'un Nahar, Trans-Oxus. Lands beyond the river. That's that river. It's called the Amudarya today. Amudarya, uh, also the Oxus River, uh, Jayhoon, right? These are various different names. Alhamdulillah, I managed to go and see it. I made a special effort. I went to, I was in Tirmidh, said I have to see, but they were not allowing us to go because it's border and there was a, there's a, it's a flash area. But I slipped away and made sure I had to see the river. I mean, there's so much discussion about it, right? You need to see these things. Anyway, that's, that's uh, another story. So there's somebody called Baqi Billah. He leaves Kabul and he is looking for spiritual enlightenment, spiritual purification, fulfillment. He wants to be spiritually enhanced. You know, tazkiyah as we call it, right? He wants to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's going from one spiritual retreat to the next. And there were lots of spiritual retreats at that time. Ibn Arabi, the so-called Shaykh Akbar, had just come and gone some, some time before that. And Tasawwuf or Sufism was throughout the world. I mean, it was spread everywhere there were khanqas. And unfortunately, a lot of corruption had crept in. Like in anything, there's corruption that, uh, that, that, that creeps in to, to everything. And huge amounts of corruption and laxity and so on. It became as if Tasawwuf almost like another religion. And Islam, the practice of Islam is not as important. I mean, I'm not saying that was everywhere. They were obviously the good and the bad where, wherever he was. So he's looking, he's going from retreat Khanqa to Khanqa, and he eventually ends up in this uh, uh, place where this Khaja and Qanagi is, or in Qanagi, who is a, 
who's a spiritual descendant of Bahauddin Naqshband, rahimahullah. So this particular Khaja says to him that he, he, gives, him, he gives him a Khilafah. And while he's there, while he's there, he authorizes him to say that now you can teach others. While he's there, he sees a dream in which involves a parrot. Now in those days, not anymore I don't think, um, parrots were for some reason seen as Hindi birds, uh, Hindustani birds, uh, in Indian birds for some reason. I, I don't know what the history is, right, for that. Uh, but we don't treat them as Indian birds anymore, I don't think, right? You never thought about India when you saw a parrot, did you? Okay? So that was the time. Now, they came from India originally, imported from India. And now they're bred all over the place. Um, it's an interesting how there were no potatoes here before and they came, you know, that, that's how much it becomes global afterwards. But anyway, so the dream, uh, the, the Sheikh told him that you're going to go to India. Now this is really significant. You're going to go to India. The parrot represented India. And that time India was huge, right? And India's always played a huge, uh, has always had a huge position in world events, I would say. It's, it's at the center, huge population. And uh, mashallah, the people are very adventurous that they're even sitting in Wembley today, right, from that, from that area. In fact, Indians, Asians in general, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, that whole area, they're all over the world. I personally think Urdu is the second language of the world because it even works in Saudi. Urdu. It works in Bahrain, Saudi, Emirates. Urdu works everywhere after English, right? Um, they just go everywhere. They're in Africa. They're just all over the place. Where have they not gone to? You go to Italy, you go to there. They're like everywhere. Indian, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, they're just everywhere. Anyway, so that's a very, very important place. It's a very important place and that has to be preserved. So this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now making uh, uh, plans for the preservation and for enhancement and strengthening the Indian Muslim. Right? When I say Indian, I don't mean today Indian, I mean Indian as a whole, subcontinent as a whole. So he doesn't want to go because uh, Khaja Baqi Billah, from originally from Kabul, he's a very low-key figure, very humble, has a lot of humility, he's not an extrovert. Okay? He doesn't want to go. He is told by the Sheikh that you will go to India, there will be a man you will find there, and you will pass on your, uh, you will pass on your teachings to him and he is going to have a major impact, a lot of preservation work. He's going to do a huge amount of preservation of the deen work in India. You're going to be instrumental. Now he didn't want to go, so he was reluctant. But the, finally the Sheikh pushed him to go. So he comes and settles in Delhi. Delhi was one of the glorious cities of the world. It's had numerous empires there, right? Uh, coming from all around them, trying to take over the subcontinent. You had the Mughals, you have the Khiljis, you've had the Afghanis, you know, uh, you've had all sorts of, it's a very interesting history for another time. So he settles there in a masjid. I visited that masjid and people, uh, uh, people of Allah are generally like magnets. You'll see the same thing uh, with uh, all the great people that you may have heard about. I mean, two of my favorite scholars of the past, the first seven centuries, I would say, uh, are Ghazali, uh, 505 Hijri, he died. And the second one that inspires me the most is Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Jawzi, Ibn al-Jawzi. Ibn al-Jawzi, again from Baghdad. Both of these were in Baghdad, just absolutely phenomenal scholars, right? And as magnets, Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, used to have a hundred people in his lectures. Right? He was just such an effective speaker, and the books were prolific. 
uh, these are, you know, we could spend the whole uh, days on him, Ghazali, and many, many of these others. I'm just trying to keep myself in time here because uh, out of respect for everyone else as well. So he's in Delhi. Lots of people are flocking to him. They're benefiting. People get to know him. There's this Afghani, Kabuli kind of person who's here very, you know, th 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 this is based on a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves someone, he calls Jibreel alayhi salam, says, I love him, you should love him too. Uh, Jibreel alayhi salam spreads this information among the other angels. Those angels, they come down to the earth because angels come down on the, uh, to the earth to, uh, to deal with the affairs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has appointed them for. So for those who matter, for the righteous in their hearts and other people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places, Qabul, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places acceptance. You don't know why you're kind of attracted to this person. You have some respect for their, their ikhlas, their sincerity, their lillahiyya, you know, things that they do for Allah. That, that's all seen. So Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, who's from Punjab, he's on his way for Hajj. And he hears about this person. And he already has uh, nisbah of uh, tasawwuf and spirituality already through his father and, uh, uh, and, and from others. Um, he... He's already a, a scholar of, uh, mashallah, immense proportions in both theology, in jurisprudence. He's read all the tasawwuf books of the past, uh, all the Sufism, and he's got a mind of his own, right? Now he's already got a vision of his own. Uh, maybe not yet, but uh, eventually that, that's, that's what happens with him. So now what happens is that he comes to visit uh, Delhi, and he meets this Khaja Baqi Billah, right, who had come there, because that Sheikh in Kanawi had told him to come here. And uh, mashallah, in two, he stayed with him for two or three months first. And then after that, he came back and stayed with him for a month or so again. And at this point, Khaja knew that this was the man that he had been sent here to find and to pass everything on to. So he tells all of his own students that from now, you're going to uh, listen to this. You know, you're going to take your teachings from him. He gives him what they call the Khilafah you know, uh, the authorization, and then eventually he passes away. Now, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, he obviously goes back to Sarhind, but eventually what happens is he becomes very, very well known, as people do. And uh, at the time when all of this is happening, there's a huge fitna. Maybe there's probably two major fitnas, two major challenges that the Hindustan, uh, the subcontinent has seen that are unlike any other. One was this, ideological, and then after that it was the, the British, right, that, that came, that was uh, another, and it's had other issues as well, but these really stand out. Akbar was a nice guy in the beginning, he was a righteous kind of guy. He was the son of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Humayun. Humayun. And who was the son of, uh, Babar, Babar, right? So that's the, you can say, he's the third or so in line of the Mughals. He's a decent guy in the beginning. He has, he's okay with ulama. He has respect and everything. But apparently, he'd not learned to read and write. Forever, there was some upheaval before that. He'd not gotten the chance to read and write. He would always take information from advisors, it seems. Right? Sheikh Abul Hassan Nadwi and others have uh, mentioned these points. So slowly, slowly what happens, he's very impressionable. And you have these... There's various types of scholars and, uh, and, and, and so on at the time as well. And they get heavy influence on him. So he comes up with this idea. I mean, he's, he is, you have to remember, Hindustan or uh, subcontinent has always been majority Hindu. 
I'm assuming that's correct. Even today, it's only 15% Muslim, and that's about 200 million Muslims. Right? Okay, if you add Pakistan to that, that's another 170, 180 million Muslims. Bangladesh, I'm not sure how many there are, but that's a huge number as well. But it's... now In Bangladesh? Yeah, maybe about 50, 500 million Muslims or something like that. But there you've got like a good 800 uh, million uh, Hindus at now. That's now. But they've had a real good uh, uh, position in India. So what this Akbar decides, he suddenly has a few women, Hindu women, in his haram now as well. And uh, th there is this idea that we need to unite. We need to unite the deans together. So somehow this is causing too much conflict, bans cow slaughter. So it's not the first time it's been banned in many states as it is now. It was banned before. And we're going to bring this together and have what they call the deen ilahi. Right, the divine faith or something like that, the Deen Akbari that eventually became to know. And he started all these other strange traditions. Anybody who came to meet him would have to do a sajdatul ta'zim, which means a prostration of reverence. The, some of the, the scholars of the time even justified that for him, basically saying that as long as you're not intending his worship, it won't be haram to do so. You're just respecting him by this. But this is one of the salient features. I mean, you only bow down to Allah. And this is only in this religion that we do this. So non-Muslims find this so strange when they see us in a, a service station. on the, like, What are these guys doing? Right? Because if you go to a church, they kneel down. You know, in the seat in front, they have a, 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 they have a, a, a piece of wood that you kneel down on. That's, that's as far as others go. In Islam, we go all the way down. We don't do this for anybody but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, before Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, during that time, there were a number of others. It was, they weren't all sold out. There were a number who did speak out. They were either imprisoned or they were, some were even put to death. All their lands, all their properties confiscated. So it wasn't as if Sheikh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left it completely alone. No, this, uh, sometimes this stagnation happens. There's always been ups and downs. There's always been ups and downs. And that's why I think we're just in a down right now. I'm not waiting for Mahdi. I don't want to be here when Mahdi radiallahu anh comes here. I think there's going to be an up again. Inshallah. Because I don't want to be in the worst fitna that's ever seen Dajjal. I don't want to be around them. Because if, if our fitna today is X, Y, and Z, what is your biggest fitna? For men, what's the fitna? What is our biggest fitna? What is the people's biggest fitna? Women? Whatever it is. For women, what's the biggest fitna for women? Men. Men. Or handbags. Or whatever. Whatever the case is. Whatever the case is. Whatever the case is. The jal is going to provide the worst of those confusion and fitna. So I don't want to be around personally. And... When the Tatars, when the Mongols were around, a million Muslims were killed in the Darul Khilafah of Baghdad. A million. The Khalifa was beaten to death. Like, we've had really bad times before. That's why you should really read the book, Saviors of Islamic Spirit. At least the first volume. Saviors of Islamic Spirit. Tariq Da'wat Azimat of Mawlana Ali Mia Nadwi, Rahimahullah. That really, it will put life in perspective, history in perspective, that we've had up and downs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always come to save, produce people to save this religion, the Mujaddideen. And there's a hadith about that as well, right? So, now what happens is, La ilaha illallah. Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi now, he's writing several books and everything. Now, Akbar dies. After Akbar dies, Jahangir, his son, who's a nicer man, he becomes the next uh, ruler of India. He's a bit nicer. He's not really involved. He doesn't have an ideology. He's just interested in life. 
And Sheikh Abu Hassan al-Nadwi says something really interesting here. He says that if you have a ruler who has an ideology against Islam, they're going to be much more severe. It's very difficult to convince them because they have another direction. On opposing that, if you have a ruler who's just into dunya, he doesn't have an ideology besides that. They, he, in fact, he says that these people even have respect for religion because they know this is materialism. And res religion gives them ruhani and spirituality. And everybody, everybody has respect for spirituality. So they actually, it's easier to work with them. They say Jahangir was one of those. Akbar has started like that, but had become an ideologue, like a really bad ideologue, right, with that. So with Jahangir, there, uh, there, there's some meetings, but eventually Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi is so popular that many of the courtiers, army generals, and other people within Jahangir's ranks are his murids, are essentially uh, the, the students of uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Now, these other ulama who are now being pushed out, who had a lot of influence in corrupting the system and making it very worldly and, you know, perennial or whatever you want to call it, uh, they're getting frightened. So eventually, Jahangir is told about this. He has a meeting with him once. He lets him go. Uh, there's details about that. He calls him again, and then he imprisons him this time for about a year. MashaAllah, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi makes that his khanqa, and all the prisoners there, they become religious, right? They become practicing, you know, on their road to wilaya. Eventually, Jahangir feels really bad after a year, and he says, okay, you're out of prison, but you have to stay with me, right? You have to stay within, you know, a house imprisonment within me. In that time, subhanAllah, Jahangir gets affected, right? And he's influenced to such a degree that some biographers have written that when Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi eventually passed away, Jahangir actually thought he was a Khalifa. Like in the Tasawwuf and the other Khulafa to kind of tell him nicely that no, you're not a spiritual Khalifa, but you know, you, you can, uh, you, you can, you're going to help the work and so on. And thereafter that, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, I mean just to finish that side off in terms of the Mughal, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi's son, he has uh, more than one son, but Sheikh Ma'soom, Khaja Ma'soom they refer to him as, he has, he, he continues his teaching and his connection with the royal family. Because they've seen, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi has seen that I've got influence there now. And that is the way, because that's where much of the corruption is coming from. Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi had demanded several things. You need to allow cows to be slaughtered again. You need to give back, uh, free those prisoners of, you know, uh, religious prisoners and so on. And basically turned around so much of what the father, Akbar, had, had initially uh, implemented in the subcontinent. So he... Uh, he manages to get a lot of that done. There's a lot of influence now. Jahangir is really, mashallah, uh, you, you know, into that now. A, lo a lot of the other families into that. So Sheikh Ma'soom now continues the work. He's the son of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Now what happens is, in fact, what Sheikh Ma'soom did was he actually sent his son, Khaja Saifuddin, the grandson of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, to live in the palace, to teach the princes and princesses, to essentially give them dhikr, to, to benefit them, and mashallah, he stayed there for a while. That was very important because that would have a profound impact on the rest of the subcontinent because that was a very powerful family. I mean, they, they were the leaders. And that time, the Mughals were strong. It, they start going down afterwards, after Aurangzeb. You know, the, the greatest of the Mughals, they say, is Aurangzeb. He is the son of Jahangir. Now, when Aurangzeb is born, he is taught by these people. He is taught by the family of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. He grows up as the most right. Actually, no, it's first, it's uh, Shah Jahan. Jahangir's son is Shah Jahan, who is even better than Jahangir. 
Jahangir's son is Aurangzeb, who is probably the best. And he's seen as the last of the greatest uh, Mughal emperors, just like the last of the great Ottomans is seen as uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, after which things just, I mean, it had already gone downhill. He tried to boost it up a bit, and then he just went further downhill until it was eventually eradicated. Same thing happened here with Bahadur Shah Zafar right at the end. But what happened now is, uh, so Alhamdulillah, he's taken care of that. Why is he now called, he's referred to by many names, he's referred to as Imam Rabbani. It's a very lordly kind of name, you know, very respectful name in terms of spirituality, but he's also known as Mujaddid Al-Thani. The Mujaddid, the reviver of the second millennium. Now that's huge. There's a hadith in Sunan Nabi Dawood uh, in which uh, the Prophet mentioned that at the turn of every Islamic century, Allah will send somebody to revive the faith. What does revive mean? Sometimes what happens, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you have corruption misinterpretation, interpolations that have crept into the teachings of Islam, right? Somebody or the other, a person who calls himself a sheikh has started coming up with new ideas, right? New uh, uh, twists in the tale as such, right? Uh, oh, it's okay uh, based on maybe uh, humanitarian reasons or whatever reason or just different perspectives that are considered to be heterodox, no longer on the path of orthodoxy, no longer maintaining the, what they call the orthodox substratum of beliefs, right? They, they, they move on from there. So then what Allah does is He sends somebody to revive that, who's got the boldness, who's got the knowledge, who's got the, the impact. One of the greatest was Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. He's probably the only one who was a mujaddid in ilm and in, he had the rule as well, so he could implement it. But then you had the likes of Ghazali, Imam Shafi'i, and so on, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, Suyuti claims to be of the 9th century, and so on. But to somebody to be called of the second thousand millennium, because Imam Sarhindi is born before 1000 millennium of Islam. He was born at a time when actually people thought Islam wasn't even gonna, uh, sorry, the world wasn't even gonna continue beyond 1000, the dunya was gonna end. That was a belief at the time. Just like, do you remember those of us who were there before the year 2000? There was this idea that there was going to be a year, what is it, a 2K millennium bug and all the systems were going to, and, and so on, nothing happened, alhamdulillah, right? So Imam Suyuti, who died in 911 Hijri, right? So a lot earlier, like 100 years earlier than Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi in Egypt, he had written a book at that time, and I want to mention this because it's very relevant. He had written a book at that time, uh, a risala, a small treatise about the world continuing beyond the thousand. Because scholars that he was uh, with in Egypt were saying it was going to end. Dunya was going to end. He showed that there are events that has men been mentioned in hadith which to occur they need 200 years to occur. According to the narrations. And still the first of those events have not happened. So even if those events start happening tomorrow, about 900 Hijri, it's going to take you beyond 1,000 anyway. Now what's really interesting, in that Risala he says, while we're going to go beyond 1,000, it's going to end before 1,500. That was his prediction. However, I can take those same events and say they haven't started yet. And we are at 1,443, is it, right now? We've got only about... 50-something years to 1500, we need at least 200 years. So we're going to say it's going to go beyond 1500. 
And inshallah, the, it's going to prosper again, inshallah. But it's only going to prosper if we make an effort. For 1500, it's going to go, but you know, we're alhamdulillah beyond that. There's always been predictions. There's lots. If you want to become popular online, give predictions. And everybody will start listening to you. Nabi Akhiruz Zaman, you will become popular. But these predictions don't work. It's Allah, it's ghaib. Allah has left it, leave it, work on your own. Our qiyamah is our own death. It's more important than the day of judgment occurring. That's inevitable. But our death is more important for us that we prepare ourselves for that. Now, how, how do we justify? Is, what justification is there of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi being the reviver of a millennium, not just a century? A century right? What, what is that? Well, as I mentioned to you earlier, this is just my idea that I think Subcontinent has had a very important position. Deen Akbari, you know, they've, they've spread in all sorts of places. The deen would have been very, very different if Akbar's deen had been allowed to prosper. We may have not been here. There may have been so many different ideas going on. I want to just give you a thought. I want you to compare just boroughs of London, right? Not even the whole country. Not even countries in Europe, right? Just boroughs of London. What do you see, if you know these boroughs, what do you see as the difference between Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Newham, parts of Ilford, compared to places like Barnet, and a lot of boroughs in Westland have lots of Muslims, but there's a massive difference between these two. I've not, I don't know too much about Wembley, I can't speak for it, but there's a massive difference. And what is that difference? The difference is that there's more alims and alimas there. People who graduated, good and bad. You know, there's the strong ones, there's the weaker ones. <clears throat> Why though? Because the people who came first in those areas, just like they came to all parts of London, they decided the first thing we need is our madrasa. The first thing we need is to take our children and send them out to Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Darlumberry, Dewsbury, whatever. They're going to be away from us. My dad wanted me to be an architect, but he sent me to Darlumberry. My mom cried for two, three months, rahimahullah. I cried for a while. But that's why I'm able to talk here the way I am. Otherwise, I would have been an architect. I would have been doing something else, which would have been a good thing, okay, as well. But it would be different. The honor in this is different. Now, today, mashallah, we actually have, uh, I have, we have students in Imam Zakari Academy where I teach, Forest Gate. <clears throat> They are PhD, they're doing PhD or they've completed their PhDs at Imperial College in physics and they're just doing Bukhari now as well. Alhamdulillah, Allah is giving us the best of both worlds in this place. Right? I've just been to Montenegro, 20% to 25% Muslim. Only five hafiz of the Quran in the whole country. They've never had a tarawih with full Quran. Just now they have a hip school, inshallah, it will continue. There's lots of stories like that. We are extremely lucky. The reason is, this I believe is some barakah from the above, obviously, because why were the people who came here in those boroughs, why could, how could they send their children, pieces of themselves, beloved, for several years somewhere else to be looked after by others for the sake of the deen? Where does that come from? Why isn't that widespread? Where does that come from? Right? I can say it comes from, may Allah reward the akabi, reward. Now, who are these? Where does this come from? There's claims also that had it not been for Sheikh Ahmad Sarhindi to have started this work 
and laid the foundations because this was the problem now. This was the one problem with Deen Ilahi. That's just one of the problems that were there. The second big problem, which I alluded to earlier, was that in Tasawwuf, though, though Sufism was widespread, there was a lot of corruption. And if you read Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Ali Mir, he, he actually explains as well that the concept of Wahdatul Wujud, I mean, I don't want to get into this, had become so, so uh, what do you call it, uh, widespread that while the, ori the, the originators of this idea may have been still righteous and pious and were definitely good people, but it gave rise, and it's complicated how they did this, it gave rise to this idea that as long as you're Sufi, and you're involved in the Sufi exercises, your other religious, uh, your religious practices are not that necessary. In some cases, not necessary at all. And there were some weird interpretations that they made from this. The only way to sort this out would be by somebody who is a Sufi, who has all of these experiences, who can speak. Otherwise, they would just tell you, you don't even know what you're talking. You're just that alim al-dhahir, right? If, if somebody was not a Sufi who tried to say that this is wrong, it's uh, this is extremes that you've gone to, this is completely misunderstood, this is not Quran and Sunnah, they say, oh, you're just alim al-dahi, you're just like an outward scholar, you just know a bit, of, a bit of fiqh and the books, you don't really know spirituality. So he needed somebody like that. And uh, according to Sheikh Ali Mia, he says that 80% of Sufis believed in that way, but they weren't all corrupt in that sense, but there was a, an amount that was corrupt. He managed to, as a Sufi, through his maktubat. His maktubat are his writings. Generally, he wrote some books as well. He wrote books as well, but a lot of the time he would write epistles. These were letters to various different either rulers, ministers, and ulama. And they're full of knowledge. And they've been compiled together. And in places like Turkey today, if you're a teacher of the Maktubat, you're like teacher of Bukhari, almost in some cases. The, the respect that, in fact, today they say that the religiosity in Turkey would probably have not been there had it not been, for example, for people like Sheikh Saeed Nursi, Badiu Zaman. Right? And he wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi way of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi and his students moving on to the area. That's one claim there. In the subcontinent, Shah Waliullah, who we all have great respect, Rahimahullah, and his sons, and the whole enterprise of theirs, though they benefited from Makkah Mukarramah, but where they found that, said Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi has laid a foundation to, for that milieu, for, that, for them to flourish. If they weren't there, you wouldn't have had a Sheikh, Ahmed, uh, uh, Sheikh Sayyid Ahmed Shaheed of Rai Bareli, right, and the whole movement of his. You would not have had that. If you did not have them, you may have not had Haji Imdadullah and Qasim Nanotwi and Rashid Ahmed Gangoi, Rahimahumullah. You would not have had a Dewban today. That reformation, what, what, the, the, the point in all of this is the reformation spirit. Not go with what's prevalent, but reform, reform, reform. Take people back to the Quran and Sunnah. Do essentially uproot the bid'ah. Uprooting the bid'ah has always been, you know, removing innovation has been one of the biggest hallmarks of this reformation movement that doesn't start in Dilbant in 1867. It starts before that in Sheikh Ahmed Shaheed. It starts before that in Shah Waliullah and his sons. It starts before that in Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. And of course, it goes back through the Ghazalis and everybody up to Rasulullah sallallahu That's our deen. That is our deen. That is a perennial deen that has come down. I don't mean perennial in the 
modern sense, or it is in the literal sense that it's always been there. The haq has always been the qa'imina al-haq. There's always been people who are on that path. So that's the second thing that he clarified. And he made amends and uh, you know, he gave an alternative way of thinking about it while not putting Sheikh uh, Ibn Arabi down either. Like not outright saying that what he is saying about an experience is actually just, it's not the highest thing. There's a state beyond that which is more in line with the Quran and Sunnah. He said it's, uh, I don't want to bore you guys with it, but it's, uh, you know, the wahdatu shuhud concept. That's, uh, don't worry about it if you don't understand that part. And the... Uh, Third, um, so these are all the various different things that what we have, uh, his whole uh, focus on the Naqshbandi way, they only had 17 lessons to get you to where they wanted to get you. He added to that, added, made it 35 lessons. The Naqshbandi way is actually a very organized way through 35 lessons to get you through all of the different spiritual stages to reach what they say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That's uh, something that we don't want to uh, speak about today. Now, the benefits of this, as I said, is not in the subcontinent only. The benefits of this are felt in parts of the Arab world or much of the Arab world as well. So what you have is you have a grand student of uh, Sheikh Ahmed Hindi, whose name was Sheikh Ghulam Ali Dehlawi. He became the Sheikh of the retreat, the Khanqa there. And mashallah, he had students from, they say, Turkestan of the time, from Balkh, Samarkand, uh, uh, Bukhara, all of these areas, from the Hijaz is mentioned, uh, from uh, uh, Iraq in Baghdad. So there's a guy who comes along called Sheikh Khalid, Ar-Rumi, Al-Baghdadi, he's a Kurd actually, as far as I understand he's a Kurd. He comes, he's heard great things about this special place in Delhi and this special man there, he comes there. And although he's a Sheikh in his own right, Right, he's a sheikh in his own rights. When other shuyukh found out that he's here, they tried to come and visit him. He said, I'm here for this purpose. I'm not going to do anything else. They would, he would refuse to engage with others. He was there just to benefit from the sheikh. He went back to Baghdad. He went to Baghdad and mashallah, people just flocked to him. That is why then Syria. He went to Syria. He's actually buried there eventually. That's where he passed away. You guys must have heard of Imam Shami. Imam Shami is one of the latest of the great Hanafi scholars about 250 years ago in Sham. We use his book for Iftar. It's like the book to go to for Iftar along with the other books. He has even written a book in defense of Sheikh Khalid. I mean, when you have great people, there's going to be Hasidin, which means jealous people. They're going to create issues about them. He wrote a response and a rebuttal to that. And a number of people in those areas benefited then through Sheikh Khalid, right? Baghdadi. And uh, mashallah, the tariq, uh, that's why there it's called the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi Khalidi way. Because he was seen as somebody who revived uh, the tasawwuf in those areas. Today, for example, there's a big madrasa with 12,000 students, right, called, in, in Indonesia, sorry, called uh, Temboro. I'm sure it's Indonesia, right? 12,000 students. And it's on the path of the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi way of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, right? Can you see the influence didn't stay in India? That's the thing about the deen of Allah. Allah chooses whoever he wants. Bukhari is from Uzbekistan, Turkic speaking, right? Tirmid, Turkic. Uh, uh, all of these people, uh, Abu Dawud is from Sijistan, which is in present-day Iran. 
Imam Nasai is from Nasa, which is in Turkmenistan today, right? Imam Ibn Majah Qazwini is from Iran, it's north, uh, northwest Iran, right? Uh, Allah chooses whoever He wishes. The deen is not in need of any one of us. Allah picks whoever He wants, whoever makes the effort. That's why I, when we went to Uzbekistan, I asked, is there somebody with a nisbah to Sheikh, uh, an ijazah to Sheikh Imam al-Bukhari? I'm asking in Bukhara. He said, unfortunately, nobody left here. They're taking their ijazah from outside because unfortunately the 80 years destroyed everything. Yes. Allahu Akbar, what is a sad case? There's only three madrasas in the whole country right now teaching advanced studies, whereas there were hundreds in each town. Imam Bukhari was not like one scholar. And there was only one scholar in town. There were hundreds, thousands. He's the only one who shone. One of those who shone. That's what happens. So anyway, to finish off now, uh, my time is coming up. In, to finish off, all I would say is that we need more Sheikh Ahmed Sabhindis. He hailed from Punjab. How many people here not from Punjab? It'd probably be easier to say that. My assumption is most people here are Punjabi. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I don't get to sit with too many Punjabis all the time. I get to, uh, always with Gujaratis and Bangladeshis. Punjabis, mashallah, right? Beautiful language. Uh, your poetry is amazing. We need this to move on. We need Punjabi ulama, not because you're Punjabi, but you know, because every deen, and I remember every borough, you need to make an effort for your borough. It's difficult to import teachers. If you've got homegrown teachers in those areas where this is happening, you've got, mashallah, madrasas for children, you've got classes for adults, men, you've got alima classes for women, you've got everything. Islamic school, the works, everything is happening. Of course, a lot more needs to happen because we are in the face of a great fitna. And you need to dedicate at least one child. Each of your children need to be a hafiz of the Quran. That's easy. If you think your children are intelligent and you want to make them your doctor, and liar, right? That they all want doctor and liar, right? That's fine. Make him a doctor and a lawyer. No problem. Not a liar, right? Make him a doctor or a lawyer. No problem. But they can be a hafiz of the Quran. I can give you several examples. Just one night right now, he's finished his physics at UCL, top university. And he's also this year finishing Bukhari, inshallah. I've had several other students, Imperial College, UCL and others, and they're also now alim. In fact, I can probably say, I don't know if anybody can even match this. I know one sister, she's a hafidha, alima, and she has a PhD as well. There's very few people who could probably match that. Okay, this is possible now. So why, you, why don't you want the best? Why don't you want the best? Why just education of the world have both? and reap the benefits of both places. And your children will thank you, especially on the Day of Judgment. Because you have an engineer who's a alim as well. Mashallah, look at the work that they'll be able to do. That's what we need today, in fact. That's what we need because this is what people are looking for. This is what people are looking for. They want people who are educated, right, in, in a comprehensive way to lead them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant the tawfiq. Again, I'd like to really, really thank and congratulate the organizers. Uh, of this masjid, Ataullah Saab and everybody else, and Sheikh Dubayan for uh, th this topic. It's amazing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow many, many great a revival to come from this because we're speaking about a revival. Inshallah, that revival will happen. Uh, it's been 400 years since that time, or nearly 400 years since he's died. So it's about time. Inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakallah khair for listening. 
May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, bless you. And if you're finding this useful, you know, um, uh, as they say, do that like button and subscribe button and forward it on to others. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.